Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to Off The Beat and Track Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Stu Whiffin. It's another day, therefore it's another episode. Today's episode, I sit down with Ian, owner of Damaged Goods Records. I mean, just go and delve into the back catalogue of that label and, yeah, I mean, you know you're going to be in for a a great music chat on this episode. Um, We talk about... um, Ian's first releases of of, of Slaughter and the Dogs and then we talk about... Ian uh, releasing, uh, you know, some of the first ever releases of um, the Manic Street Preachers uh, and, and, and so much more, right up to, to, to what's coming out on the label uh, this year. Um, it's a wonderful chat. And before we get on with that, just a few uh, thank yous. Um, big thanks to uh, Scroobius Pip and the Distraction Pieces Network. Thank you to 76 for producing this podcast. Thank you to um, comedy musician podcaster cunt and the gang for putting this together for us and introducing uh me to ian and and if this is your first time listening to off the beaten track podcast um once you get to the end of today's chat with ian um i'll ask you to go and have a look in the the back catalogue of both damaged goods records and of off the beaten track podcast because uh there's a whole wealth of um, great chats uh, available there if you like um label owners you can hear me talking to um uh, owners of Transgressive Records, you can hear me talking to Alan McGee of Creation Records, um, and yeah, you can hear me talking to all manner of uh, uh, of musicians. You know, from some musicians that we discuss um, on the, on the podcast, such as uh, Chrissy Boy and Bedders of Madness, uh, Terry Edwards of Gallon Drunk, um, uh, and you can also hear me talking to artists. As diverse as Fatboy Slim, Chuck D, Melanie C, Tommy Lee of Motley Crue, through to amazing actors like Maxine Peake, Joe Hartley, Amanda Abington, Michael Smiley, and through to comedians such as James Acaster, Ed Gamble, etc., etc. Go and have a rummage. Go and have a little look through and, uh, and see what you can find. Uh, to tickle your fancy um if you'd like to support the podcast this is a labor love this pod and uh and so you can support it but you also get lots of content if you decide to support it and the way you do that is via patreon which is like a if you don't know like a tiny little social media sort of site and i can upload and what i do upload is sort of three or four radio shows each week um video episodes other unique episodes you also get access to a back catalog of 200 episodes on there that have never been released to the public and that would cost you something like 71p a week. And uh, and so, yeah, that all goes in the pot to help with the, the production and the, the, the arranging of uh, of this podcast. 
if you can't do that, don't worry. Just go and uh, listen to the 250 episodes you can do so on Spotify, Acast, iTunes, etc. Um, we're on all the socials as well. And so one of the things you can do to help that doesn't cost a bean um, is to give us a like, love, share, retweet. Or better still, subscribe. If you subscribe, that really helps. And yeah, and, and tell your pals about it. Uh, the podcast community is a very nice, tight-knit place. So, uh, yeah, give your mate a nudge that likes podcasts and tell him to go and listen to an episode of Off the Beaten Track. Okay, that's enough of the kind of the hard-sell pitching in the intro. We can now get on with today's chat. Please enjoy Off the Beaten Track podcast with Ian of Damaged Goods Records. It's Off the Beaten Track podcast. On the Distraction Pieces Network, with me, Stu Whipping. Okay, we are recording, and joining me today via the means of Zoom is Ian of Damaged Goods. Hello. Hello there. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. So we've had a we've had a 15 minute chat already, just to kind of introduce ourselves because we've never met before, but Absolutely. we've um, we've got a, a mutual friend in. Um, is he a musician or is he a comedian? Comedy musician, cunt in the gang. Absolutely, and, uh, yes. And uh, so we've got a mutual friend who introduced us, and uh, and, and I'm excited to have this, this chat today um, because Damaged Goods, the label, um, has been responsible for some incredible output for, for a very long time now, which hopefully we'll get to discuss uh, as this podcast unfolds. Um, speaking of, of, of the, the, the kind of record industry, <clears throat> and, and we're recording this at the beginning of January uh, 2021, uh, in the thick of a, uh, a, another level of lockdown. Um, how have you found the last sort of 10, 11 months in as both a human being and, and as somebody in the, in, in the music industry? Um, well, it's been obviously kind of weird. Um, the, the, my, my first sort of, uh, thing that happened was that I got it. Really? Oh, really? Yeah, um, I'd gone to, um, like, a, like the genius that I was, I, I went to Paris uh, to a gig on the, the 12th, 12th of March, um, which is when Paris was just about to go into lockdown. And I had thought about it and thought, well, maybe, yeah, no, nah, it'd be all right, it'd be all right. It's only a gig. Uh, we're going on the train straight through, straight back the next morning. Um, and the gig was packed. It was a proper gig. It was packed. It was a band called The Correttes, who... We just signed to Damaged Goods. Um, so we actually went over there to surprise them. We didn't tell them we were going. Me and Duncan went over there. And um, and it was a great night, but it was a proper sweaty jumping up and down, down the front, even even at uh, my my elderly years. Um, I still still get drunk enough to go down the front and fall around. I probably don't jump much, but I barge into people a bit and they barge me out of the way and then I, then I go to the back and have a beer. Um <laughs> But yeah, so I did a bit of that, and uh, it was all good. It was all hot, and we stayed out till two. Went to a couple of bars and had beers, you know, like like normal people uh, in normal times. And then, as we came back on the thirteenth, I think Paris had actually gone into lockdown, but we hadn't actually looked at our phones or checked in it. And we did think it was really quiet at um, Garden Hall, and uh, it was like, oh, there's not many people about. Got coffee with no queue and everything else, and um, came back and obviously then started looking at the news and realised that the record shop I'd been in the night before was now closed because they they've been shut down and their lockdown started. So got back to London, thought, and by then it was all sort of starting to happen, and um, so we sort of 
you know, tried to go out as much as we could that weekend, yeah. thinking this is good. You know, last weekend, go around all the pubs in Leytonstone, all the cafes, go and get cake, you know, buy some stuff from shops that are going to be shut next week. So we um, did that. And then on the Monday night, um, I got sort of shivers, started shivering and bang, I was knackered. Next day, sort of wiped out for a week um, and realised I had it. Uh, at that time, you couldn't get tested. So, but I did get a test in June uh, where it said I had the antibodies. So we did actually have it. And um, yeah, so that was that was my introduction to this. So yeah, I had a complete, A, we'd gone into lockdown, I think about a week later. So by the time the UK went into lockdown, I was just coming out of being ill. But you still have that one day on, one day off. You get knackered one day. Next day you think, ah, that's it. I'm back. Next day, wallop again. But uh, after a fortnight, it was fine. And then it was just like the dawning of it all was that, you know, A, nowhere to go, can't go out. All the gigs we had planned for that month, I mean, you know, running a label, obviously, probably four or five nights a week I'm at gigs um, or down the pub talking sort of bobbings to various people and um, or, and going to a gig as well. Um, so, yeah, life changed very quickly and... And it was that's uh, the first start off. It was a bit unknown because you thought, "Is this the? Is that it? Is no one going to buy anything? Are we stopping selling?" And we didn't furlough, didn't stop because um, there's always stuff to do anyway. Um, but we, uh, we just thought, "Oh, okay. Well, we'll just take it easy." We we did stop shipping for a couple of weeks, um, and then slowly just realised that well, mail orders carrying on. You've got you know Amazon and people like that carrying on cargo our distributor was still doing it um and we we sort of just carried on really we didn't stop i mean it was what i mean it's for, as a label it's not been anywhere near as bad as well it's not been bad particularly at all um but it's compared to what the bands are going through because sure. the poor sods that are sitting at home can't actually do anything um we can still sell records people are probably in some some cases buy more records because yeah. they're not spending any money on anything else sitting on their phones watching daytime telly and going oh, oh i'll get that oh, i'll get that and mail order just sort of kept going you know and yeah. all the infrastructure was still there post office was still open all the usual things um so it's been weird it's been it's very weird not not having that contact with bands anymore apart from like on you know on the phone yeah um and the fact that bands can't really get in studios so or you know because obviously some bands live together, little mm-hmm. two-piece bands, but a lot of bands are all over the place and they get together to go to the studio. Um, so we've got a lot of bands that were bringing people in from America to record. Graham Day was going to record. Um, guitarist is in America. Um, so he can come over. So a lot of stuff we had shelved and uh, we had sort of ready to go and plans all stopped. Um, some of our artists sort of could get in the studio and some have, some have just spent the whole year in the studio like Billy Childish. Yeah. He's knocked he's knocked out at least five albums. Um, wow. Since March. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's almost getting too many now. You know, it's sort of like, ah, another two. Yeah, he's nothing else to do, basically. Yeah. So um so it's 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 sort of weird. Um from my point of view, it's been it's the weird thing is just not going to the pub really. Yeah. I think yeah. that's the thing I miss the most. Yeah. Weirdly. I miss that almost more than gigs, I think. Just the normality of because that was always part of the sometimes the gig was the pub and the pub was the gig yeah. uh, or you always go to the pub before a gig anyway or more or less always um and it's just that 
not just going down the local, you know, having a pint, uh, even pint or two, reading reading Private Eye and coming home again. Yeah. Um, so that's uh, sort of weird. I, I work from home anyway, so it hasn't made a lot of difference in that respect. Um, so, yeah, just basically, yeah, got our head down and sort of carried on working and sort of tidying up. We did a lot of tidying up of things we'd never got round to, all those contacts, that you, all those emails saying, oh, can you let me know about this? That, that. Got a lot of stuff out of the way. Um, and unfortunately, yeah, we're still in the same situation, you know, getting on for, as you say, 10 months later. Yeah. And looks like we will be, to be honest, I don't really see any gigs happening until probably September, October. Yeah. Because the reality is that you're not just going to, you know, even if everyone says like, oh, April, May, we're, the the infections have gone down and everything, you're still not going to really fancy being in a room with 250 people sort of crammed next to each other. You know, some people might be, but not many people will. I don't think, you know, four deep at a bar trying to push through with a a score in your hand. It feels quite alien. I don't know if it does to you, but it does to me. It feels kind of alien now. As mentioned to you um, previously, uh, before we press record, that Obviously, as a, as a as someone that runs a, a music venue, yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm hyper aware that it's going to be one of the last, you know, businesses that will probably reopen and function as it used to. I I, I can't, in all honesty, this year in, envisage five six hundred people jumping no. around in a room together, pissed. I just can't see it. I want to see it. Yeah, yeah I want to see it. it, but it does feel complete. It feels quite alien. And it's so weird to say that after such a short, I mean, after such a really relatively short time. Sure. But it now feels quite alien to yeah. be thinking of being, you know, that close to so many people you don't know, all pushing past each other. I mean, that's, you know, you, you're constantly touch, you know, touching people legally or illegally. Uh, <laughs> but most gigs, you know, so it's, you know, it, but, you know, that, that's what you do at the Lexington or somewhere like that. You know, the stairs aren't wide enough to get past without actually, like, at least rubbing elbows or whatever so yeah be interesting to see how many venues come out of this you know that's the worrying thing yeah the the really worrying thing is that you know we are going to lose so many venues and so many so many promoters that just couldn't take it and couldn't yeah cope with it and understandably it's not like everyone's got a load of money in the bank yeah thinking oh just in case something happens i'll I'll keep like 50 grand spare um you know and some landlords have been good to promoters um, some landlords have been, you know, bad to pubs. You know, a lot of people are. Well, we all know the stories. Um, it's yeah, it's it's hard, and you know, uh, well, it'll be a different world. Um, it'll definitely be a, a different, smaller um, world when we come back. But it will eventually come back, I'm sure, and it will give opportunities to different people to try their hand at it. You know, uh, and may. We'll lose a few, but we'll probably gain new ones. Absolutely. Same as shops, you know. I guess that's, you know, but it is going to be very odd for probably all this year and probably half of next year. Um, yeah. Well, let's, um, let's talk records. And uh, for track one, Ian, I'm going to ask you the song that you regard as having the greatest ever intro, please. I would say it's The Suite uh, with Ballroom Blitz because there's something just amazing about that drum and Brian Connolly just introducing the band and it just kicking into the one of the greatest pop singles ever made. And I just loved it. It was, I'd have been about 10 when that came out and 
I'd been fairly obsessed by records since I was about five. My granddad gave me a load of seven-inch singles in about 1968 um, that were like, he had a load of seven-inches and he found out albums existed and he said, you might as well have them because I'm not playing them anymore because you have to keep turning them over. <laughs> and thus, thus I got about 60, 70 singles, which included things like Beatles, Stone, all, all your 60s hits, yeah. really. Um, quite a good selection. I mean, he wasn't super cool or anything. It was Neil Sedaka in there. There was, you know, all, all, your, all your obvious ones, Diana. Yeah. Um, but it was just like, great. And the first thing I did was put them in alphabetical order. So it was obviously going to be a problem. And now if uh, I could show you around here, everything, everything is alphabetical order. Yeah. Uh, you've got to be able to find things. People Absolutely. who don't have their records in alphabetical order, I don't think they're serious. Because yeah. you can't find anything. And, you know, catalogue number doesn't work. Yeah. But um, uh, but anyway, so uh, I, I sort of really liked the suite already. I think I liked Brian Connolly. I liked Steve Priest fucking about. I liked the whole, the whole thing with um, just that, the way that, Top of the Pops became a place to dress up and make a fool of yourself. And, you know, builders builders in dresses, basically. Um, so you've got all these brummies and all these, like, big butch blokes all wearing, basically, girls' clothes, um, big high shoes, makeup, and trying to outdo each other. And Sweet were obviously one of the best at that. And they were getting, if you think back to sort of, like, the first few singles where they had hits, like... Papa Joe and Little Willie and stuff like that, it started to get sillier. And then by the time they got to sort of Bora Bits and Bockbuster, they were, you know, they were coming on completely outrageously. And it was just something, they were they were visual. It was great. You know, they were visual. These are the days when records didn't have covers. You know, most singles didn't have picture covers. So you didn't, you just got a bag with RCA written on it with Sweet, blah, blah, blah. Um, so seeing bands like that on top of the pops. And I think that, that intro... It's just great. I yeah. mean, you could start any show off with it. You could start any, you know, if ever I've DJed, um, you know, I'll pretty much play that first. Um, you know, it's just just great. Yeah, just just a brilliant start. The, the Suite has been the band that I didn't expect to see uh, come up that much on this podcast, and I've done nearly 270 episodes now, and there's something about that band that pops up in so many episodes Wow! Really? Like, yep. Um, one of the very, very first ones I done was with Alan McGee, and he just went off on the suite. Just how much he loves that band, uh, and then from then on, I was like, I did not expect him to mention that. And then, literally, I reckon maybe every third or fourth episode, somebody will throw a, a track by the suite in there, wow. and and kind of echo what you've just said about being young and seeing them on top of the pops and seeing Brian Connolly and like just the wow factor of that. I think it changed every uh, everyone at school. The next morning, on Friday morning, you would be. Did you see Top of the Pops? Yeah. Did you see the Sweet? Did you see Slade? Did you see Gary? You know, Gary. Could I say Gary Glitter? Yeah. Um, but you know, all the people were there. I mean, Sparks, another one. Oh. You know, you know, first time, first time I saw Sparks was when they this town ain't big enough for the both of us. And you know, the cliche, the cliche thing. My dad did say that. My dad did say, "Why does that bloke look like Hitler?" Why have they got Hitler on the piano? Yeah. Uh, you know, it was like, you know, they, they did say that. And they said, you can't, you know, all the great things, like you can't hear the words. Why are they dressed like women? Yeah. You know, that was partly why you liked it so much, because your parents. hundred percent. hundred percent. Fast forward, like, you know, a few years and, and, and my my sort of early memories at Top of the Pops was sitting there, my dad going, oh, she. And I'm like, and it was watching <laughs> Culture Club. 
and you know, and, and, and just sitting there and, and the school playground the next day, everyone was like, was, is that a boy or a girl? And, 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 and you look yeah. back now and you think, why were people even questioning that? Of course yeah. it's a man. Yeah. But yeah. at the he was time. He was a good looking man, wasn't he? Yeah. You know, he and did it, look good. You know, you were about, is it? Is yeah. It? yeah. And it really was a thing. And I remember like, you know, the, the press furore around it, like, you know, was boy George, you know, he's like, is he a boy or a girl? And yeah, oh, incredible marketing. But um, he, must loved, he must have loved it. He must be laughing so much at that point. Oh, just, you know, absolutely. This is the best thing ever, you know. Just brilliant. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Well, let's um, let's let's stay in the the, the early years and um, for track two, uh, the first song you remember hearing that you had an emotional reaction to. Yeah, this was a toughie, as we were sort of saying. It's uh, it was it was like emotion made me think of obviously crying of uh, being you know welling up. Um, uh, my first emotion when I heard this band um, was more throwing up than welling up. It was um, <laughs> it was like a, uh, a an epiphany of of bile, um, and there was something about them. And and um, I really hate the fact that quite a lot of people still say, "Oh, first album was good." It's like uh, it's something about the. UB40. Um, it was just you like, struggled oh, to say that. I know. I don't know what to say it. I, know, I, I really try my best not to say it. Or, or, or the word. I'm going to say Ali Campbell as well because that's the main. The main protagonist is him. Um, and it was just uh, something. I don't know what it was. I think it was the pork pie hat. It was. I don't know. There was something about them that just really got me. And it was emotion. Yeah, it was emotion. It was hate. It was. You know, and to hate a band for no reason is terrible. But they had just something wound me up. And they then got they got worse as they, you know, uh, get, you know now um, uh, obviously they're, a, they're a, a pastiche joke of themselves, which is fantastic, but they're still there. <laughs> and it's like, uh, you know, it, it peaked. I mean, you'd be thought, that, you know, one in ten. It, it was that, I don't know. I think it was the, the accent, the faux Jamaican sort of like yeah. the, uh, you know the patois sort of yeah. you know brum, patois brum you know I, I don't know it was something about that just made me yeah just vomit and that was the best emotion that, that was the first emotion I could think of oh fantastic um, 
So, yeah. Where, where was where was home? Where was growing up? Uh, born in Hackney, uh, then Walthamstow, then Leytonstone, sort of Bermuda Triangle of uh, East London. How was that growing up? Uh, fine. It was good. Um, Hackney, I was only there for a while. I did move up to Essex for a while. Um, I lived in Whittam in Essex, um, where I went to my sort of big school, uh, sort of senior school. Um, so it was it was because basically we all just got moved out of old houses, went to a council estate in Whittam, uh, went to a school in Whittam, um, which at the time was quite nice because I'd gone from, you know, basically Leibridge Road um, which is a very built-up sort of area, um, to somewhere where there was fields and peas being grown in the fields next to us and, you know, cauliflowers around the corner and stuff. Um, but then they just plonked all these estates on it and built it. was a very much a new town built yeah. on a bit of a village. And um, it was good, you know. We had, you know, bike rides, falling in lakes, you know, all the things you do when you're stupid. Get up up to about fifteen when we got a fizz, got a um, not a fizzy but a SS fifty Honda SS fifty, and was driving you know driving that un, trying to unrestrict a, a restricted mo, moped moped motorbike, <laughs> um, and go, I remember going down Malden Hill once and like just not being able to stop, and we got to the you got to the bottom and it was a quite a sharp right. And instead of that, me and my mate, we just went straight through, straight through into the field. And I went straight through. I managed to get my head down and go straight through into the field with the bike, just about, and then fell off. And then my mate, actually, the bike went through, and he was stuck in this hedge. Sort of thing. If, if there was a video of it, it would be, you know, it's like Only Falls and Horses or something. You know, it's like one of them. But uh, so it was nice. It was nice sort of. I missed the early punk years in London. Um, but I was only when punk kicked because punk was what sort of changed my life, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Glam rock and all that. And music changed my life, but punk rock established you could do something and you could be whatever you wanted to be and you could do anything you wanted to do, as Eddie Knott was maybe once said. And it, it's sort of like it just became, yeah, it just became great. And we used to go to Chelmsford to gigs. Um, we had a crappy punk. Well, <laughs> That's very rude. Uh, we had a local punk band called the Punk Dukes, who were more of a joke, really, um, a jokey sort of punk band. And one of them used to be in Steel Ice Span, apparently. Um, but we'd go to Chelmsford. I saw my first proper punk gig was the real Adam and the Ants in '78. Um, so what, I missed that first, you know. What venues were in Chelmsford then? Was the Wire doing anything? Was the Army and Navy nah. doing anything? No. Nah. Uh, it was more Chancellor Hall. Yep. All the main gigs were Chancellor Hall or the Odeon. Mm-hmm. Um, they were they were the main. I saw the Banshees, um, uh, Cure, Banshees, Cure, Spiz. I think it was at um, the Odeon, um, Cowboys International. But the Ants was really good, supported by a band called the Lepers, who went on to be modern English. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. They were called the Lepers when they played with the Ants. And uh, Young Prisoners had just come out, and I, I absolutely, I still love Adam the Ants. Well, we, we, we'll touch on, on, on punk um, a bit more um, because I'm sure it w- would have impacted you around this time. But for track three, uh, I'm going to ask you, uh, Ian, the song that reminds you of your time at school. Yeah, I guess it's only, it's hard to think of a song that reminds me of school, but I do remember this one in the playground. And it was uh, Slade with Come On, Feel The Noise. Um, again, Top Of The Pops, it had been on there. And I just remember loads of girls... Um, going chasing us around the playground 
not because I was particularly attractive, but I just think that's what they thought they should do because it was like girls grab the boys. Yeah. Get well, 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 and yeah, I remember, I remember that, and all going, oh, get away, you know, that, 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 you know, being what, ten, eleven, and being chased around by girls at playtime. It was like, you know, now you think, oh, that would have been brilliant, but obviously not a ten or eleven, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but you know, it, it, at the time, I think that's what reminds me of school. But there, there, if briefly, there is another one that reminds me of school. Uh, the very end of school, I used to be because I was such a nerd and so into charts and music and everything else, I used to be the one with the radio um, at, at playtime, at lunch break, when the new chart came out. And I used to announce whatever, you know, punk ones had gone up in the chart. I remember when specials went from 16 to 1 with Too Much Too Young. And just that was probably my last week or two at school, I imagine. So it would have been early 80s, uh, very early 80. Um, and... Um, I remember announcing that and everyone going crazy in the playground. Not that I was particularly popular, but I was the bloke with the radio who knew. And then they they pushed me over after that. But um, yeah, it was. Uh, so there was a couple of things that really remind me of school. But um, did you enjoy think, it? Uh, no. What no, did you like really. about school? Um, I didn't really like. I wasn't particularly good at anything. I wasn't great at anything. I mean, even I was just appalling at art. I can't draw. I could, I could design record sleeves, uh, but I can't draw. Um, and they wanted you to paint and draw and do things like that. Technical drawing. I like maths. Um, that's probably maths and technical drawing is about all I liked, really. The rest of it, I thought, was a bit of a waste of time. And I couldn't wait to get out and get a job, really. Um, I didn't. I did O-levels, I think. I'm, I don't even know how many I got. I, I got told by... One bloke that I got two, and then someone else said, "No, I don't think you did." And I was like, "I'd gone by then. I'd, I'd moved the day I left school. I left Whitton and came to stay with my aunt in London um, at Stamford Hill. Um, and then my dad moved back about six months later, and we moved into Walthamstow. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to get to London to go to gigs and record shops, and you know, just be a punk. Did you know? Did you have any idea what you wanted to do when you was at school? Not a clue. Nah, nah, nothing. No, no clue. Um, no, not really. I think I, I didn't. I didn't. It did, I didn't really contemplate anything that you could earn or be in the music business or what what jobs there were. Probably, um, I, I did write to EMI uh, Records in about when I was about fourteen. Sent them a letter saying, "Can I have a job when I leave school?" And they really, you know, those days you you got a reply, and it was like, "Well, you can apply this way, and you can do this." Um, so I had that and I had a few other things and I, I just came to London and, and you could just walk into a job. It was really easy to get a job if you weren't too choosy. And I just went to, I went to somewhere called the Brook Street Bureau um, and just went and sat down. had a really crap suit on that I'd got somewhere and sat there and I, I got a job in a, in a very um, posh estate agents in Westminster, opposite opposite Westminster, um, opposite House of Parliament. It was called Clutton's, and they're the estate agents to the Queen. And I was just doing microfiche. I learned how to do microfilm, microfiche. And uh, I lasted about three months doing that. And then someone said, you can get a job with um, the MCPS, which is the Mechanical Copyright Protection Service, which is where you pay your mechanical, every time you press a record, you pay them some money, PRS, similar sort of thing. And I got a job there. And that was my tiptoe into the music sort of scene or business or whatever. They were in, they were in um, 
Berners Street in the West End, just up from Soho. And it was like, I'm working in, I'm working in the West End with a load of people talking about records all day. And I was working on live. And um, I used to have to fill in PRS forms at the end of each gig. You still technically should, but no one does. Um, uh, and we used to get them forms and analyze them. They didn't really have a card. They had card systems and things, obviously pretty much pre-computers. Um, so we used to add it. But, you know, we'd be looking at form. You'd get a big pile of forms, and a lot of it would be, you know, ramshankle blues band that played down the road and played yeah. the same old songs. But then you get then you get Judas Priest, and then you get Generation X, and they were signed by someone. And I never nicked any. I should have nicked some, yeah. but I never nicked any. Um, but, you know, I was going through it. They're like, they're actual like, band gigs, and, uh, you know, and you're analysing it. And... And it was really good, and especially if you knew what you do, you know, you knew about records. Yeah. Because a lot of people would look at something and go, you know, if you write a song called Love, then there's a good chance some idiot will put some money to it because they don't yeah. know what what the the most famous one is. Um, so your best thing is to write songs exactly the same titles as the most famous songs, and by by default, someone will give you some money because they don't know that it really is the Lennon McCartney one or whatever. Yeah. So. Yeah, so I worked there for a year and a half, and it was uh, it was um, yeah really good good way of sort of meeting people. Not that I was thinking this is a job, this is a career, um, and I used to just spend my whole time around the record shops in Soho, um, Berwick Street Market stalls, um, Hanway Street had about six record shops all with collector stuff, and I learnt more about like collectible records and white labels, things you did you wouldn't know about until you got somehow connected with radio or or promo and stuff. And, yeah, I remember I used to spend every single penny I had either on on that or arcade machines. Um, well, well, that, that ties in perfectly because for track three, I'm going to um, – track four, sorry, I'm going to ask you um, the first record you remember buying. First record I remember buying was actually – uh, me instigating being bought um, would have been, it was in about 1968, 69, um, was uh, Johnny Nash, Hold Me Tight, which is a sort of bit scary, bit bit pop song, um, not the greatest record of all time. Um, but I just remember I heard it at, I heard it at Pontins uh, <laughs> on, on a jukebox. I, I remember having to be lifted up to see the record going round. And um, and I was like, ah, oh, that one. Can I have that one? And it was, I think I got to a point by about six or seven where people started saying to me, do you want an Easter egg or do you want a record voucher? And it was like, oh, I'll have a record voucher. And then I could use it to sort of like get records. Yeah. Because uh, obviously didn't, didn't have any money. And in them days, you didn't really get pocket money. I'd be lucky if I got 10p. Yeah. Um, it's not quite the same as now where you transfer some money to someone's, your child's card. Um and it, yeah, it was that one. Johnny Nash, hold me tight. I've still got it. It's uh, you know, it's it's a good single, but it's definitely not one of my favourites. But that was the first one. Um, there, there is a. I don't know if you want the follow on from that, but there is the one I remember actually buying with with real money um, was um, David Bowie um, uh, Diamond Dogs. Oh, what and, uh, and the only reason I bought that was because I went. At Martin's the news agents in uh, in in Whitton, in the arcade, um, and they used to have new releases on like one of those metal racks, you know, like the old toast racks for records, yep. and they had them all there. And I went in to get something else. There was another record in the chart. I don't know what it was, like Rubettes or something. It would have been something like that. And they were they didn't have it. And I was with my dad, 
And he went, oh, they haven't got it, so you might as well leave it. And I was like, oh, no, I'll get something else, I'll get something else. And I, I went through, and there were ones that weren't in the chart. So I, I hadn't heard it, and I, I sort of saw it, and it said, and it didn't say David Bowie. It was when he went Bowie. And I remember getting it and going, oh, I'll have that. And he went, well, do you know, how's it go? And I went, uh, I haven't heard it. He went, well, get something you've heard. You might not like it. I said, I will like it. And he's like, get something you know. Get something, like, you know, what's number one? What's number one? And I'm like, no, I want that one. And so I got Diamond Dog eventually. I put, you know, gritted my teeth, got, got Diamond Dog, got home, put Diamond Dogs on as, as a 10-year-old and thought, oh, God, that's really long. Oh, he's oh. no Rubets, is he? Uh, no, <laughs> and, it was, and it was quite a grown-up single. I mean, it's not really a single. It's not a pop, you know, it's not Gene Genie. Yeah. Really, you know, it's a great, I love it. I absolutely love the song, of course. But it. But luckily, the B-side was Holy Holy. Yeah. Uh, which was, you know, bang, straight in, Holy Holy. You know, it's like really, you know, fantastic. Proper bit of, in my mind at the time, pop music, glam rock, whatever. Um, so I was pleased anyway. But yeah, that was it's, it. Was such a great thing with my dad. It was like yeah, him saying, "Well, get something you know." And I'm like, "No, no, no, I'll have that." And he said, "It doesn't even say David Bowie." <laughs> like, well, it obviously is. It's on RCA, you know. But yeah, good conversations to have when you're ten. I, uh, <laughs> I just want. I mean, I ask all guests this, and it seems a ridiculous thing to ask you, um, but just the importance of record shops, you know, then and now. And I mean, obviously, you own. An independent record label, so I, I presume record shops are still they're a very, very important place. They're an integral part of my business plan. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I, growing up, record shops were the place to be. You know, the the most exciting place. Um, kind of scary sometimes because you felt a little bit out of your depth because obviously they knew everything. You know, the bloke behind the counter was your was your leader, um, and you would sort of go in there and sort of yeah, you, you know, you wouldn't. There'd be so much stuff that you didn't know because you know now now things are a lot easier to find out about. We've mm. all got phone; we can look up everything. But you know, you go through stuff. You know, I could have gone past Velvet Underground Records, and what the hell's that? Never heard that. You know, you, you and you didn't have loads of money to buy extra things. You could only yeah. buy what you knew. Um, and it, uh, they were just—it was just great places to hang out, uh, just great places to spend hours and hours until probably sometimes even got told to sod off because yeah. you've been in there so long. Like, yeah, can you, yeah, we've got to, yeah, there are other people coming in the shop. Um, but I remember when we had one shop in Whitton, there was like, you could get your records from electrical retailers. The bloke who sold fridges sold, yeah, Rumbelows in Whitton yeah. had a little record section. There was another electric shop down the road that had a little record section. And it was always worth going around because when they couldn't sell them, they'd stick them out for 5p or 10p. Yeah. And you could pick up like whatever was in the chart two months ago like really cheap or ex jukebox singles on yeah. the market. Um, no middles. Yeah. But you know, yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah. It was great for that sort of stuff. Um, but then we had a record shop, proper record shop open in Whitton called Musicrafts, um, which was run by a, a bloke who was very, just really relaxed. Though he was obviously a bit of a dope head, I imagine. Yeah. Thinking now, now with hindsight. Um, but he always seemed very chilled and relaxed. But it was when sort of the punk stuff was starting to come through. He'd have, all the singer. I, met, I bought um, Holidays in the Sun by the Pistols there, and he saved me a picture cover because that was very limited. Yeah. But, you know, in them days, it was very limited. I think it was 100,000. Yeah, now that would be like uh, 100,000 would last the rest of the time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, getting the picture cover was like the, you know, the be all and end all. And I got one of them. But I also remember buying the 
the, the record that I named my label after, um, Damaged Goods by Gang of Four. Um, from there, the same week, I bought two singles. I bought that and the Human League, uh, Being Boiled. They both oh. came out on the same label, Fast Records. And that's, a, that's a good couple of purchases, right? That's there. a great couple of purchases, yeah. yeah. And I didn't really know them. The yeah. Human League one I bought because cause I hadn't heard that. I don't, I think I'd heard on John Peel, I think I'd heard Damaged Goods. Yeah. But I don't think I'd heard Human League, but it was on the same label and the cover was brilliant. Yeah. Oh, bought, what a cover. I think and, um, our, I think our mutual friend may well have that cover tattooed on him. Like, the, t- the, the, yeah. Cover, the girl, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he might do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it is a great, great, great single. It's a great uh, single. Uh, Bizarrely, yeah. um, that the podcast I recorded first thing this morning was with Martin Ware. And, was uh, so yeah, I had a I had a good chat about uh, all that that kind of era ah. of, of of what was going on in Sheffield. Uh, this, Fantastic. This yeah, morning, yeah. it's really weird that, that that same mutual friend that we. We've been speaking about, um, uh, uh, you know, during this podcast. I was responsible for his first record purchases. Um, and that come about, and it, like you say, electrical outlets. We had a toy shop that <laughs> sold half toys and half records. And, and it was going under. And so I think he had a couple of bob in his hand. And I was like, right, come on, we're going to uh, we'll go in there and, and I'll tell you what to buy. And, uh, and yeah, and he bought, um, he bought Madness. I remember oh, right. uh, he bought... That's not a bad start. Was it Absolutely or Keep Moving? I think it was Madness. And, oh, an uh, album? Yeah. An album? Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. Oh, you were posh. And, uh, and well, no, they were flogging them off super oh, cheap. Okay. And, uh, yeah. Um, and so when did your... Just going back to, you know, you touched on damaged goods then. When did your kind of what I guess was a, a an obsession with, with, with records and, and, and music, when did that change from just a passion to the concept of it being a, a, a label and a business? Um, well, it, I sort of, I mean, I, I, yeah, as soon as I, everything I did was music related, uh, sort of like as a fan, you know, buying records, um, you know, getting into the minutiae of labels, finding out, you know, what, so if, if you've got number two and three on that label, what was number one, you know, um, and things like that. And uh, I quite, you know, quite interested in the, how records are made and things like that. <clears throat> and it was about 86, 87 that I thought, I'd be really good to make a record, like, you know, to, to make one. You know, I didn't know what I was going to make or why I wasn't doing it as a business. Um, it was just like, I want to make a record, not with me on it, but I wanted to make a punk record. Um, and, and it was quite a funny time, really, because it was 10 years after punk. Um, and punk was pretty much a dirty word at that point. Mm. You know, now it's sort of seen as in its historical sort of way and everything, you know, and yeah, punk's not dead and whatever. But we'd gone through all that oil stuff and it had got down to sort of your sort of exploiteds and them sort of bands, which I wasn't that keen on. That's that that sort of second wave when it mm. went a bit a little bit metal. Yeah. In some way. It went you know, when all the when the Cockney rejects and people like that started doing metal albums and yet, you know, really yeah. You know, it was appalling. They, they were they were shit at it, and um, it was like I'm not interested in any of them bands. There was the odd, and the new wave stuff had got very poppy. Like obviously, the Human League had become complete pop bands, and mm-hmm. Gang of Four funk band, and you know some of those bands. So there was there was stuff going on, but then it then then there was a real good upsurge of um, like indie pop sort of stuff, um, all the C eighty six sort of stuff um, with bands like Tallulah Gosh and. BMX Bandits and um, that sort of thing, which I really like. So I, lo- I love a pop song. Mm-hmm. I think underneath everything that I like is a pop song, 
whether it's someone screaming and shouting it, you know, metal, noise, horrible thing, still a pop song. Very rarely, like anything, hasn't got a tune. Um, and I sort of just got to a point where I thought, okay, I'd love to make a record, so how do you do it? And I didn't know. Um, I, I had a vague idea that you cut a record was cut and then it was pressed. I didn't know the internet. So I, I sort of, there was ads in the back of uh, papers saying, you know, press 500 singles or 300 singles for 200 quid or whatever it was then. A lot cheaper than it is now. Um, and it was, I just thought, oh, okay. And there was a place called Vinyl Cuts, um, which was in um, Stratford. Um, it's long, long, long since gone. Uh, and I phoned him up and just asked about doing a record and how it would work. And he said, well, you need to get it cut. And I knew, I'd seen on records, like things like Porky's Prime Cut and things like that, on the little scratchings yeah. on the on the run-out groove. And I didn't know what Porky's Prime Cut was, but I, made, I knew that it was the person that had cut it. So I tried to find out who Porky was. And I found out he was a bloke in um, George Peckham, <clears throat> who was actually still based in um, Shaftesbury Avenue, still doing cuts and everything else. And you could just phone up and book one in. So I thought, okay. So I'd saved up some money and I got about 500 quid. Um, and then I thought, well, what am I going to do? So I had this sort of idea about, I didn't really know any bands that well that I was going to see. Um, I wasn't really talking to a lot of bands or I was going to gigs uh, but obviously I came from Whitham to London, so I didn't have like a circle of mates when I first got here that were not coming down from Whitham. Um, and they, they would only come down every now and again because it's a long way to London, nearly 45 minutes. Um, so, yeah, people people don't tend to like going to London. Oh, London, I went there last year. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and... Um, uh, so I thought I'd like to reissue something, and I thought I'd like to reissue an old punk single. And Slaughter and the Dogs uh, was one of my favourite singles, wherever all the boot boys gone. So I thought, well, I'll write to Decca Record, totally naively, totally naively. And, you know, I phoned up, and he said, I got through to someone at Decca um, who said, can you write in and send us a letter with what you want to do? So I did this cutout. I did, like, all this sort of lettering, Sex Pistols-y sort of lettering cutout letter i want to unfortunately i picked slaughter and the dogs where have all the boot boys gone so it took a bloody long time to cut all those letters out <laughs> <laughs> so i think halfway down the letter i got bored of it and typed the rest and uh and then i sent it on dayglow yellow paper and sent it off to uh decker um with i want to release this single um can i license it from you or do it you know can i is that okay and this bloke uh, amazingly about a fortnight later i got a phone call at home from this bloke, and he said, um, oh, right, I got your letter. Um, yeah, yeah, it, it's possible. Um, you know, what what sort of licensing fee can you pay? And I was like, what does that mean? And he went, oh, don't worry. Um, and it, and it sort of, the conversation went a bit like that. He said, oh, have you done anything before? You know, have you got any references? I was like, no, I've done nothing before. It's my first single. And, oh, okay. It, it turned out that Decca was on its last legs. Um, they were being... They're pretty much gone. Not, but I don't know if they've gone bust, but they were being sucked into a big, the phonogram group, I think, or polygram, whatever it was called then. Um, and I think all their jobs were going. And so I, I, the bloke was very amenable and didn't care and thought it was really funny. And he lived in Chingford. Uh, I lived in Walthamstow. 
And um, and we started talking. He said, oh, we've got a contract. I said, oh, okay. Uh, do I need to sign that and read that? And he said, yeah. I'll, he said, I'll bring it around. And he said, oh, you know, what tracks do you want? And I got an extra track from a B-side from another single to make a free track EP up. So I knew what I wanted to do with the record. I knew what I wanted it to look like. So I photocopied stuff and made a, made a cover. And um, and basically, just uh, he turned up on my doorstep about four days later with a reel-to-reel tape and a contract about as thick as a decent-sized mid, mid-range telephone directory. And I just went, ah. Oh. And he said, ah, oh, don't worry, just sign it. They, 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 no one's going to care. And uh, I, he gave me the tape. And uh, that's how I licensed the first record, the Sort and the Dogs record. It was as easy as that. Wow. Um, which would never happen in a million years now. Yeah, that could not happen now. Yeah, it just so it was pure luck that I ended up with that single. I might have ended up with something else by asking around and talking to bands or something. Yeah. But at that point, that was all I ever wanted to do was one one single. And I went to the I went to George Beckham, saw the single being cut, met George Beckham, Hawkey's Prime Cut, the legend. Um, he was a crazy man, dances around to everything, dancing to Sport and the Dogs. <laughs> so this is this is quite bizarre. And um paid him. Took my took my lacquers up to this place in Stratford. Got there. It's like a, the smokiest, dirtiest, horrible place. The industrial, the, the rec- making records is not a pretty thing. It's a very industrial process. It's hot plastic, big big tubes with steam coming out of them. Smoke, you know, blokes, you know, black eyes where the, the gunk's going around. I mean, it's horrible. You're melting plastic. Yeah, yeah surprised most of them aren't. Yeah, most of them probably are dead, unfortunately. Um, and I watched, I watched them do the. I went back a few days later once they, because you have to from a from a lacquer, you have to then grow a negative and a positive and get your stampers. Um, and um, I went back when they were doing the very first record and dropped a dab of. It's a red vinyl single, and I did a couple where I put two little blob of blue in, um, which is very normal now. Everyone has multicolored singles, and yeah. no one did that then. And uh, so I've still got number one, which is. My one with the blue with the blue dabs in, um, and press five hundred singles, and uh, and I was a record label. Luckily, I changed the name a few days before because it was going to be originally my label was going to be called Groovy Pineapple Records, which would have been a terrible name. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah, I think you've done the right thing now. Damage yeah. goods, he's, uh sounds right, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. It was weird though because yeah, I, I had this thing in my head, Groovy Pineapple. And it was like I had, the, I had the hilarious pineapple with arms and legs and sunglasses uh, cartoon that I'd done, and uh, yeah, could have been could have been one single and out. <laughs> and then I think I was sitting there and I thought, well, damaged goods because I'm reissuing old stuff, therefore yeah. damaged goods. It made sense. And yeah. Obviously, the Gang of Four single was one of my favourite singles as well. So um, that's how that happened. So yeah, that that started off, but it still wasn't a business. It was one single, and all I wanted to do was take. I took ten to Rough Trade traded them for some single, got some store credit and basically did it like that until, um, you know, until I then I got contacted by some, a bloke, a couple of blokes with another label who were quite interested in what I was doing. Um, cause they wanted to license that album, the, the Slaughter and the Dogs record and they couldn't get it. And cause they, they were quite official and it was very difficult to sometimes license stuff. And they were sort of sussed me out a little bit. They were a bit punk, old school punk rock sort of label, and and once they talked to me, and I was obviously enthusiastic and knew what I was talking about, they were really helpful. And they they told me about distribution, 
exporters, exporters, which were the life and blood of the music uh, UK music scene at that time, um, and introduced me to people. And <coughs> they said, you should get the album. So I phoned the bloke at Decca and said, can I have the album as well? Two days later, he turned up on the tapes. And then an addendum to the contract was just signed and never looked at again. And, wow. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's how it all started. And it pure, well, pure yeah, naivety, really, but just sort of worked. Cool. There's a lot of right place at the right time there. Yeah, pure luck. I mean, pure luck, uh, but, you know, you make your own luck by having a go. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it, you know, you definitely wouldn't get that now. You couldn't phone up any of the major labels now and yeah. say, oh, yeah, I want to start a label. Can I loan that? They're like, no, you need 10 references. You need all the, it would never happen. Um, so so that was a great, you know, lucky way to start. And it sort of went, and once I'd done the album, it sort of then became like, oh, okay, this is, it sold fairly well. And I thought, oh, okay, this is easy. <laughs> Which was the, the, the next lesson. But yeah, a few, two years on when I started doing new bands um, before the Manic Street Preachers um, came along. Um, I realised that no, not everything sells, and it, and you lose a lot of money every t- every record I was making. So, and so, yeah. what was the, what was the track you done with the Mannix? Uh, their first proper single. Um, they did they did a seven inch on their own for a studio down in Wales, and I saw them in '89 uh, at the Horse and Groom in Great Porton Street, up above the pub, um, <coughs> very little room, and uh, they were brilliant. They were jumping around, all logos all over their white coats and uh, jackets and trousers and everything and they were just really good yeah i didn't really you couldn't really hear nothing they're they were on the floor there. there was no stage in that place um but the enthusiasm was great and i just went up to him afterwards and said you know i've got a record label i did the slaughter the dogs thing and a couple of it and and james was really into that sort of old punk rock as well yeah. um and nikki both they both knew that single and it actually bought the slaughter the dogs single and because uh, I said I'll swap, yeah, I'll swap you one for your old single, and he went, I've got it. And I went, oh, okay. Well, I got the album, and it was like, oh, right, okay, yeah. So, um, and I said, yeah, I'd love to do a record. So, they, um, they, we got in touch with a lot of letters. It was all letters in them days, obviously. So he'd, I'd send them a letter, they'd send me one back with some things, and they were playing again in London at the Rock Garden or somewhere. And they sent me a load of flyers because the Rock Garden pay to play. Yeah. So you. You used to have to sell tickets to get any money. Yeah, they just rip, rip bands off left, right, and centre, as you, as we all know. And, oh, um, I, I got ripped off there about four or five times in my band. Yeah, but yeah, they, they, but as a band, you thought you was playing the Rock Garden. For me, I thought I was playing Pasadena Bowl. It was like <laughs> yeah, the Rock yeah. Garden, and and they yeah. sent out these tickets. I can't remember what beer it was. Used to sponsor the tickets and all their events, but. Um, it was, it was oh, I can't remember, but I remember thinking, oh my god, I'm playing the Rock Garden, and I've got proper tickets. You know, this is it. As, a, it. as a promoter <laughs> now, I just think you're robbing bastards. You're yeah, literally just Absolutely. fleecing bands left, right, and centre. Yeah, yeah. You get a pound for every one you bring, yeah, or something. You know, yeah. You got like, br- you got to bring a couple of coach loads up though, lads, if you want to play. Yeah. It. Oh yeah, no worries. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We come all the way from Wales in a van. We're sleeping in the van. We're knackered, yeah. and you've got twelve quid. Thank yeah. you very much. That should cover your petrol. Oh yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's amazing. But uh, yeah, so it ended up. Yeah, we ended up. That was the first band I paid for the studio um, and put in a studio. Um, weirdly, in Redditch, they didn't want to do it in Wales. They wanted to do it somewhere else. And the only studio someone recommended to me. Who produced that? Mark T. 
Tempest. Right. Was that, did Dave Eringer, uh, Dave Eringer, Eringer produce the the early stuff that followed that? Yeah. 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 Once they signed, once they signed Major, yeah. Yeah. So, what yeah. track did you do with them? Uh, New Art Riot. Right. The okay. Four, yeah. Four track, four track twelve inch. Yeah. Um, New Art Riot. Strip it down. Teenage twenty twenty. And another track. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> 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 I'm cheating. Uh, and uh, oh, and of course, um, uh, uh, last exit on yesterday. Yeah. Oh, look at that! That's the that was the, the very limited pink vinyl one. Yeah. Oh, so, that's nice. Who done yeah, the artwork they, on that? They did. Mm. Um, they sent well. They sent me that picture of the European flag, and I we superimposed the writing on it. And uh, that originally was going to be a picture, but then they decided they didn't like the picture of the band, so we did. We just did that sort of thing. But yeah. Lovely. Um, yeah, it was good, and obviously that that was our first sort of successful thing because by the time the record came out, which was June '90, um, they started to get like antagonise the press and antagonise every other band by telling yeah. every other band that was going that they were shit. Oh, I'll tell you uh, what, in I don't know if you've listened to it. Have you listened to Nicky Wire on Adam Buxton's podcast? No. It's a wonderful listen because obviously, you know, they talk about, you know, the, the, the huge success that the Manics have had, but they talk about, they play a game where Adam says a line and he's like, did you or Richie say that or did you not? And obviously, <laughs> fuck me. So, what, what was the one about slow dive? Uh, I can't remember the line, but I mean, they hate, I mean, slow dive were like, you know, they, I can't they would, think they what it was. Rip, they would rip the shit out of everyone. I mean, all the bands that I knew and other bands that I liked and like uh, Mega City 4 at the time. Yeah. I mean, you know, they, they hated the Manics. Yeah. I had a bet with, I had a bet with Jerry from Mega City 4 that the Manics would get in the top 40 before they did. And I won a tenner <laughs> of them. He was really pissed off. And because uh, he said, shit. why are you working with them? Why are you working with them? They're shit. I said, no, they're great. They're lovely. It is weird because they did sit kind of out of place of everything else that was going on then. Absolutely, completely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they were, you know, they 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 were they loved punk rock. You know, they in their minds they were a punk rock band. Obviously, it sort of changed quite quickly. But nothing Um, else was happening like that then, was it? When you look at what was happening with that kind of what we called out in like the Grebo scene with you know Mega City Four and and census things and car and poppies and all of that sort of stuff, and you know, and then you'd have like the shoegaze stuff, and then you've got these four lads wearing makeup, white denim, talking about Guns and Roses and Public Enemy. It was like it was confusing, yeah, yeah. And then obviously Richie does the 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 big carving on the arm. Yeah. Front, I mean, they, they obviously knew how to work the press from a very young age. Yes, they uh, were they were good at like the, the quote, the controversial mm. stuff, and uh, you know, getting noticed. And yeah. um, I think I think they just had opinions, and they they're really bright. Yeah. You know, that, that's the other thing. I mean, a lot, you know, they people always go, "Oh, stupid." They're not. They're really bright mm. and articulate. I mean, Richie, you know, Nikki, you know, they're, they're all really, um, really bright and. Um, yeah, they used their knowledge and their, they, I think, yeah, they, they worked out how to do it. And, uh, yeah, the whole thing with the, the for real thing with Steve was horrible. Yeah. And Richie, Richie was in a bad place. I mean, that's not a, not a good thing to do to, you know, for anyone. Um, and, I, you know, I saw him do things to his arms. Uh, and it's horrible. Yeah. Um, and, unfortunately, we all know what happened in the yeah. end. But, um, you know, that, that was a real, that's the, the, that's the really, really sad thing with the Manics is still the whole thing with Richie. Yeah. Um, just a terrible, terrible waste 
Um, and yeah, just like one that one, you know, absolutely awful. But um, but no, they were they were they were astounding. They were really good. And yeah. that tour, the tour when they broke through, I think um, probably um, around Stay Beautiful, Motown Junk, and that yeah. where the controversial tour where. You know, gigs were it was almost as exciting going to one of their gigs. Something would go wrong, so they wouldn't I, do an encore, someone would throw something. I saw them at the Tan and Country. Uh and I'm a huge REM fan. And <laughs> uh and and I think I am sure it was Nikki, not Richie. Nikki said a really oh, yeah. big quote about yeah. Michael Stipe and AIDS. Yes. And that one caused a lot of furore, if I remember rightly. Did. Yes, yes, yeah. they did. Yeah, yeah. And then there's that classic cover of the enemy, or I think it was the enemy. It might have been, yeah, I think it was the enemy where Richie's got HIV written on his. That's right. He did it in the mirror, so it says VIH. That's right. The like, reverse, but um, it, it was uh, yeah, they were they were interesting interesting times. But yeah. those gigs were amazing. I remember going down. We I used to go around with them still, sort of quite for quite a long while, and um, uh, I think it was the Reading After Dark. Um, it was just. Fun really exciting and it was electric in there because you've got people that have just gone there just to throw things out yeah you know as much as people who've gone there because they liked them and it was a real you know people had gone just to lob beer at them and yeah. you know and then they'd react and yeah it was great they were you know a bit like, a bit like when the sputniks broke through yeah. and had that that week of mad gigs like i went to dumpster to see the sputniks and it was so exciting because it was yeah. like yeah Half the crowd thinking this is the second coming, yeah. and half the crowd thinking I'm going to kill them. <laughs> and uh, yeah, always the best things. So, you know, contra- controversy, controversy uh, you know, it just uh, makes things very exciting. It's nothing, you know, more dull than going to see Slow Dive, for example. <laughs> you know, shoot, shoot me now. Um, well, yeah. for track five, I ask guests about the song that soundtrack their years clubbing, and and you was you you you, you dropped me a message saying you never went clubbing. And uh, I mean, I should mention that 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 the term clubbing does lend itself to a dirty, sweaty indie night uh, uh, yeah. anywhere. But I was going to suggest Seal, but I thought that would be too too much of a shit joke. But, um, but I, I couldn't. Yeah, sorry. And so, no, what I was going to say was was obviously you've just touched upon the electricity, you know, seeing the Manics, you know, at them early shows and stuff like that. So I, I imagine that somebody that was constantly looking for for new and exciting music, that gigs were going on instead of of clubs. Uh, Absolutely. And and so just yeah, them, them early nineties and things like that, like to, to pick on that kind of era. Uh, whilst we were there, I just wonder, you know, what other sort of gigs you saw then that that really stuck in your mind. Um, Public Enemy really early on yeah. was a was a wonderful gig. Um, the this was before the Beastie Boys one. I think the one before the Beastie Boys. So that one. was the one with LL Cool J and Eric yeah. B. McKean at, at Brixton. Yeah, yeah, really exciting, and they were great. You know, yeah. properly properly good. Um, and the Beastie Boys ones, you know, were even better. They were they were they were a bit more. Uh, the crowd had changed completely by then. Yeah. They'd become like, more mainstream and obviously people were there to see the beastie boys um but those gigs were really 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 exciting i mean there was there was no end of great gigs you know i think probably the first time i saw sparks was in uh, it was a late early eight mid now wouldn't have been because they were they didn't really come over um because there was no demand a lot of the records didn't come out so i remember the first time i saw sparks i was almost like crying with delight and 
just thinking this is the most wonderful thing. And they were just so good, and they still are. Yeah. The weird thing is now, even now, you know, they they do bring tears to my eyes. I could have maybe had that as an emotional moment, but it wasn't an early emotional moment. But uh, yeah, Sparks had full tears to my eyes. Um, I got really close to getting them on the podcast, and it and it kind of just uh, fell through. And I was like desperate to get it on. I uh, yeah, yeah, like, that would be wonderful. Oh, yeah, definitely. I did get Chuck D, so I can't complain. And right, uh, yeah, yeah, and to yeah. Get to, Chuck, uh, to chat to Chuck, who you know, around that time, eighty-seven, like Public Enemy, that you know that, and the Beastie Boys. I, I was chatting to someone the other day about it, and was saying. You know, as a forty-seven-year-old man, I would have been like fifteen, sixteen, and something like that when 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 them gigs were happening, and and I guess that was kind of my punk. Yeah, like, the furore around the Beastie Boys. You know, of, <laughs> we don't want them in this country. You know, blah blah. Like robbing VW badges off of cars and putting them around yeah. their necks, and you know yeah, that yeah. that was as as punk as it got for you know for for, for me as a young lad. Yeah, well, that, I think that's the thing that, that it's it's a really weird thing, and it's sort of like you don't want to sound like a total old git, even though obviously I am an old git. Um, it's it's that there isn't that there isn't gangs now. There isn't gangs music wise. You know, there isn't like punks and Ted's and you know mods and new romantics. And, there is metalers yeah. though. There are metalers. Metalers are that, still there. That tribe has never gone away. No, no, there are old tribes, but yeah. there ain't anything new. There's nothing. There doesn't seem to be like. No, a new... and it's it's really strange. I have this conversation quite regularly because he's mad that back then it was you know you 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 picture you know you wore your colours on your sleeve. You had your band no, t-shirt and you you know you, you got yeah. in your you found your tribe and now I think and I put a lot of that down to sort of streaming services of, of you know yeah, how I easy think... it is to access whatever music. Everything's available, so you don't pick one they, you know when I talk I, I often ask like you know younger people like relatives and things and kids and stuff and say what do you like a bit of everything and they all say a bit of everything and I say oh, so, oh I listen to the Beatles I listen to that do you, you know, it's like, oh right so you don't there's not but there isn't you know there isn't and and it is the access thing you know that, you know it was great buying the music papers because you'd see all your favourite bands were doing um, once a week that was your info that was all the info you had you mm. know the gig amazing you know that we all managed to get anywhere and meet anyone yeah. in those days you know without actually having a phone yeah uh, you know we all got to gigs we all you know managed managed to beat everyone go down to pub with people without actually saying i'm going to be two minutes late yeah. sorry i'm just outside yeah it's like don't phone me and tell me you're just outside <laughs> um and it is kind of um it's it, i think that has that, that is what's changed i think um there's no tribes. There's no, you know. There's you know. We're still, you know. In my mind, I'm still a punk rocker, um, you know. Uh, but it is, yeah. Just a sh- it seems a shame that's not that for the for the kids growing up now haven't got that. They can still obviously you get the odd one that will turn into a punk rocker or a mod or whatever. Um, but it's not that. It's not a big thing. It's not like at school where you know you were a punk or you did. If you were a punk, all you did was pull your tie a bit tighter and move it over slightly, and have a have a safety pin under your under your lapel. And if anyone's sending it, you're a punk. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Look at that. Look at that. Look at that. Yeah. Oh right, 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 right. Chalked anarchy on me back once, and then everyone started bashing it off. I, uh, but it, you know, running. You know what is a? I guess you'd call it an alternative night spot or whatever you want to call it. But you know the club that I work at. Yeah. And, and working at a time I have, I've seen these waves come through of, you know, we touched on that whole Grebo scene 
of you know the the, the early nineties that was happening in the UK, and and obviously go back a couple of years to what was happening in you know in in Manchester, and then moving forward through to switching to Seattle and the you know the, the, what what was yeah. deemed grunge through to Britpop, and there was all of these scenes that yeah. you know certain you know certain parts of you know every college you know they'd be like right this gang here they're the indie kids they're the rockers they're the grungers you know yeah they're the shoegaze kids over there in their cardigans like <laughs> and it's like but, Swiss sense, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah exactly yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and 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 that was my first clubbing experience just to touch on clubbing i, I went into the club that i you know that, that, that i run and and i went in there and there was loads of people with quiffs and cardigans flouncing around to to the smiths there was people that were, were dressed like robert smith there was loads and loads of obviously being so so close to to, to basil and there was loads and loads of people with these this is like you know 89 <laughs> loads of people with sort of like quiffs and their hair shaved like dave garn and it was like yeah, yeah. and you know nitsreb and all that was happening then and and it was like there was industrial and it was like and i just thought oh my god this is mad i've never seen anything <laughs> like this there's so many tribes within a tribe yeah, and it yeah, was yeah. like I'm, I'm, I'm in. Yeah. I'm in. Yeah. I want. I want to be in. And well, uh, I think Pink Toothbrush was where Depeche Mode played most of their early gigs. Wasn't that's it? right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Places like that. That's I think right. Was, I do um, have. I do have a, a, a cassette. I have the first. I have a, a desk recording of one of those early mode shows. And, yeah, I've got uh, some of those as well. Yeah, like, yeah. Sounds awful. Like, yeah. <laughs> really yeah. Yeah, I mean it's, it's plinky plot, plinky. Isn't it? Yeah, I mean it doesn't like sound a... as awful as as I mean I'm I'm a Depeche Mode obsessive, uh, and it doesn't sound as awful as um, some of those um, Depeche Mode live in '87 from blah 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 on vinyl that I bought on Camden Market. Them yeah. kind of schneid bootlegs that ah yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. oh, I got suckered into so many of them. Every single one, at absolute utter shit. <laughs> <laughs> of course they are, yeah, 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 yeah. But but they're probably worth double what you paid for them. Probably, probably. You know, so you, you can always get your money back. But, uh, <laughs> if you're a Depeche Mode obsessive, I will share my one trip, my trip to Mexico. In when was um, when was the 101 tour? Was that 90 or 90? 101, 87. Yeah, 80, was it? Okay, so it must have been the year after, so 88. Um, I was in LA and we went down to Tijuana. Friends of mine lived had run record shops in LA. They used to sort of go over there quite a lot. Um, and we went down to Tijuana, got on the rickety bus uh, into Tijuana. Um, and we just went for a beer, um, you know, surprisingly a Corona. And um, had went, we found this place, this woman going, eh, Depeche Mode Disco, Depeche Mode Disco because they were the biggest band in LA at that time. They were massive in LA. Every, everywhere you looked, there were posters, all the gold and black posters, you know. Um, and it was just like... And we went in there, and they'd just got a load of posters on the wall of uh, Dave Garn in different, like, you know, wiggling his ass in different ways. And um, and we were in there, and there's like four Coronas for a dollar. <laughs> and we sat in there listening to, like, Depeche Mode at a million decibels. <laughs> this is great. I, I like Depeche Mode. I, I, you know, much as, like, you know, I was supposed to be a punk rocker, I love Dave. I, lo- I like Martin Gore's solo stuff, counterfeit yeah. stuff. You know, Never Turn Your Back on Mother Earth, for example. And, and, um, and cheap beer. Yeah, and cheap beer. And it was great, you know. So, yeah, I actually went to a Depeche Mode, complete Depeche Mode pub. Wonderful. <laughs> in Tijuana. Well, I'm going to take you from Tirana back home um, for track six, Ian. Favourite song from an artist from your home county, please? Yeah. 
Oh, it said county. You know, you know, I was looking at that and I <laughs> actually read that as country. 80% of guests do. Okay, well, yeah, they're not from my own county then, are they? Yes, because they're from the Isle of Man. Uh, but, um, uh, well, I've, I've picked the Bee Gees. I started a joke. What a record. Um, it's just one of my favourite singles of all time. Um, one of the albums I got in the 60s, my, my dad, my mum and dad had, uh, they got four albums off the back of a lorry because we were from Hackney and um, everything was off the back of a lorry or out of a skip. Um, and they got four. I remember coming back with four albums, uh, one of which was uh, the Bee Gees' second album, uh, Horizontal, um, which isn't on that, actually. This track isn't on that. But I, I became fairly obsessed with these four albums. So it was like Dusty Springfield, Bonzo Dog Doodah Band, Gorilla and Timmy Euro. And I, they, were, they were the only four albums. Yet. When you've got four albums, you play them. Yeah. And when you've got all that lot, you don't play anything oddly because you think, oh, I don't know what to play. Yeah. Um, and I got fairly obsessed with the Bee Gees, um, early Bee Gees, not so much the disco Bee Gees. I mean, take it or leave it, they're all right. You know, they've got their place. And But I love the melancholy bits of um, Robin Gibbs' vocals. Mm. And I started the joke is just, yeah, just, yeah. It's my funeral song. Yeah. Um, I would like that played at my funeral. Um, and it's just a wonderful record, and it's just like, and yeah, he was—he wasn't even twenty when he wrote that. Yeah. What a miserable bastard! <laughs> <laughs> but you know, but they—they—they—they they, they, they just wrote so many brilliant songs. I mean, those first four Bee Gees albums—if you haven't got them, you know, not not the Australian one, the first four proper Polydor albums—are um, just astounding. There's yeah. so many brilliant songs on there, and they. And you can see that they're they're jumping a bit on bandwagons here and there and things like that, you know, going a bit Beatlesy on few tracks. But when they get down to their ballads and their sort of basic pop songs, they are untouchable yeah. uh, as songwriters and um, and vocalists. And, and I think I like I do like a high pitched voice. Mm-hmm. Um, I have got a thing about a falsetto or a high pitched voice. You know, I like things like. Um, at the moment, like the Lemon Twigs, yeah, uh, I don't know if you know them, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, I really their, their first album's amazing. Well, you've touched um, on Sparks quite a lot throughout. Well, this. Sparks, obviously, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's your there's your falsetto, yeah, um, and Klaus Nomi, people like that. I really like, you know. So I've got a thing. I mean, I like all sorts of stuff, but I do, I do, and I think that came from the Bee Gees. Um, yeah. You know, even my Chemical Romance. You know, you know the the Black Parade album's amazing. Um, and I went to, as a funny gig, that was a, that was a, that was a great gig. I remember going to that and never have I heard so many children scream at the same time. Yeah. It was like, it was scared the shit out of me. <laughs> Literally, t- teenagers scared the living shit out of me. It was that. We, we were like, you know, like we went, we went, I, I went to the back with all the mums and dads in the end. Uh, it was like, it was the most amazing cacophony of like, I've never heard people scream like that when he came out. It was like, oh, it is strange when, like, you know, kind of alternative music cut through to that teen audience. I, and an example of that being our mutual friend in, in Compton again, we, we used to go and religiously watch Blur from, like, very early on. You know, we saw them at the old track and all these tiny little shows. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you another time about when me and him made up fake press passes from Select Magazine and, uh, and blagged our way into uh, their gig on Clacton Pier. Um, Fantastic. But, Fantastic. Um, but, but then we saw them on the, the Great Escape Tour um, mm. at Wembley Arena. And then all of a sudden... I was like, ah. 
It was. It was like yeah. it, it, it was their sort of Shea Stadium. It was all these like screaming girls, and it was like, all oh, right, they're pop stars now. Like, yeah, it, that, that, that's it, what's weird, happened. Like because yeah. we've been standing in these dirty, sweaty pubs watching them, you know, playing you know all their stuff, and and it, you know, credit to them. They, you know, they wrote lots of great records that ended up. You know, they couldn't be ignored. Them songs they were they were so poppy and and infectious that they become pop stars. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It is it is weird that when it goes from that. I mean, it must it must have really it must really freak bands out. I mean, yeah, My Chemical Romance. You know, obviously started off as just a sort of punk band with with yeah. you know big, big ambitions and became very pomp and very everything. But then, yeah, when did it go from like you know it being like you know skater kids and yeah. sort of twenty year olds to like I mean there were kids that looked like small children yeah you know, they were screaming their heads off for, for you know a, a record about death <laughs> you know, about death wearing makeup and dying and cancer and you know a miserable bastard record you know brilliant uh, yeah really strange and I haven't been to many gigs like that so I think that was a bit of a shock yeah um, yeah I've seen Kylie and things like that I've got tickets to Kylie before um, once and uh, that was kind of funny but it wasn't that but yeah, yeah it's really weird um that that thing it must have been i mean it must have been so amazing for bands you know and and dip this you know you see where harking back to the suite where they got to a point where they hated it because the suite always were that rock band that yeah. weren't any they weren't getting taken seriously mainly because they were wearing ladies clothes and going on top of the pops yeah but but you know the B sides were always you know where they'd swear you know yeah. they'd have a song where they you know so old man wants to call you a degenerate bum or something you know and it's like um, you know but the the song on the A side Fox on the Run was lovely you know yeah um, and that sort of thing and you just sort of uh, you can see them you can imagine when they did the Rainbow and it was probably full of children. Mm. And they're like, ah, this is terrible. So they just want to, you know, Steve Priest would just play up and say the most obscene things just to sort of shock them and try and get them out of it. Um, yeah, yeah, quite amazing, that. Yeah. Well, for your last song, I guess you get a chance to do what you do best, which is um, tell us about something that we don't know about and, uh, and, and inform us of something great to listen to. Yeah, um, uh, just uh, this was just I mean there, uh, there's so many obviously obscure things you could pick from a from a sort of uh, a collection like this but I just thought I'd put something that is actually on damaged goods um, that I came that came out this year um, and it was just a demo I got um, uh, Australian band um, three well four kids basically all about between eleven and thirteen. And it's just the most brilliant little pop song. Uh, it's called Isabella is Annoying. It's about a girl called Isabella who's annoying them at school. And they've got a really cute video. And it's just a great little pop song. It's sort of their songwriting, and it is them writing it, um, is astounding for, for kids that young. And I've never done a record by anyone young like that. Um, it's a one-off single. I don't know if we'll we'll do any more. There's no, there's no plans to sort of like do anything. And obviously they've had the same problems in Australia we've had. So sure. they, they wanted to be doing a few little gigs and things like that. And they're probably all their voices are broken now and they've changed completely. But, um, which is the beauty of bands when they're growing up, you know, one minute they want to do something else. Next minute they want to be something else. Yeah. Um, but it's just a great little pop song. And everyone that heard it, like Mark Riley at Radio six was, couldn't believe it. He said, they're really, are you sure you're, you're not getting me at it? They're, they're 11 to 13. And I was like, yeah, yeah. Look at the video. Look, they're children. You know, and uh, it's a great little single. So I just thought it'd be quite nice if, you know, 
give it a bit more of an airing. Um, so yeah, the rallies, um, yeah, astounding little seven inch uh, we did. Only only very limited, pretty much sold out. And uh, yeah, we'll see what happens with them. I think one day they'll be kind of famous if they can write songs like that at that age. So you said there's just something I want to touch on there. That, uh, <coughs> you said you received the demo. Is that still how it works? I mean, uh, you know, I would I would find myself strolling around Camden in the nineties with my record bag full of me me band's demos, just giving it to anyone that I thought had the right haircut and knew someone at Food Records. It was like, yeah. you know, is, is, <laughs> you know is, is 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 it still the case that is you know get your demo yeah. in and, and and let's go from there? Pretty much, yeah, yeah. We still get stuff in the post, but mainly it's emails, and mm-hmm. it's getting a little bit. It's a bit much sometimes, and the the problem is is also. Sometimes it's better when you're not doing very well or not getting a lot of press, then you don't get so many. But if you have one that gets away, like Ammo and the Sniffers last year, yeah, um, now everyone sends you their bloody demo and all sorts of bands. And, and sometimes they're, they're, they're so uninspired and so, you know, you get damp, you get rap, rap stuff and death metal from Scandinavia. It's like, have you looked at the label? Yeah. You've seen what we do. You know, you've got to be thinking, you know, aim it at what we do. Yeah. Rather than, rather than just some random, you know, folky girl with a guitar from, I don't know, wherever. Um, and But no, we still get demos and it's getting quite hard to actually catch up and um, <coughs> actually have the time to listen to everything properly because you, you can't. Every day, there's probably been five today. Um, oh, wow, really? And, yeah, and a lot of time you can get... Yeah, you can see if it's just the general one that they've sent to everyone on a record label list that they've downloaded from the internet, um, or it's someone that's actually into the label and targeted. Um, and we can't take on too many more records. We've got enough records really coming out, and I don't want to get any bigger. don't want to do more. You know, this isn't something I'm trying to take over the world with. We'll carry on at this level. Um, <coughs> and... Um, I think it's just, uh, but it's good, you know, every now and again one surprises you, and that was one. Um, that exactly was one. So. Okay, well, uh, as, as we start to sort of wrap this up, um, if people want to sort of find out more about, you know, what's going on with the label, where's the best place for, for people to keep up to speed on what's uh, happening? Uh, the website's obviously really good, uh, which is damagedgoods.co.uk, um, and obviously we've got Facebook pages, Twitter, Instagram, um, that's about it. That's where we basically put all our stuff. We've got, we have records coming out pretty much every month. Um, this month we've got Billy Childish album. We just did a Captain Sensible record just before Christmas, a uh, heavenly compilation of Christmas. Um, coming up this year, we've got a new band, or a newish band, a new band to us uh, called The uh, Corrects, um, who's second album is going to come out on damaged goods in september would have been earlier but everyone's waiting until they can hopefully do some gigs again um we've got billy childish's son's band uh the shadracks who are really good their second album they've just done and then we've got some old punk stuff we're throwing out as well um plus we're actually having to repress a lot of old records that have run out over the years that now need re reissuing ourselves so we you know, there's a limited amount of stuff we can actually afford to do at any one time. Um, but yeah, we, we, we tend to do a lot of, um, <coughs> a lot of tweets and Facebook posts as like a normal label. Um, and you know, much as, you know, we don't, we, you know, we get bobbins from it. Um, Spotify, Apple music, 
Amazon Music, whatever, you can find all our stuff there. If you go to the label, find the label on there, have a scout through. Um, there are some playlists up. And if you sign up for our mailing list or keep an eye on the social media, every week or two we do a little 10, 12-track playlist, which has got something new, something old, and you know maybe maybe a sweet track on it or something as well. You know, we mix it out. It's not exclusively damaged goods. We are bung in like you know schools out or something, you know, um, as well. Um, just sort of a bit break it up a little bit. Um, so yeah, that's that's probably the best way to sort of find out anything. We've got a mailing list. You can sign up for if you want my inane ramblings and uh, Duncan, Duncan's inane ramblings and, and moaning about Brexit, the post-Christmas <laughs> pandemic. Brexit has been oh. great for record labels and small businesses in the UK. Thank God. Thank God those that will stop all those people in boats coming over. What a stupid idea Brexit is. <laughs> Absolutely the worst thing I can imagine in the world is Brexit. Oh, dear. But, don't get me started. We're not, we're not, we're not political. Not, not that that's particularly political. Oh, brilliant. Um, and I'll tag you uh, the label in all of the um, posts when this comes out on, on the socials. Um, we'll, we'll drop in uh, the, the web address and that into the bio of this uh, episode so people can go and uh, get stuck into the, uh, the, the, the website and the back catalogue and, and, and go and find out about the huge history of, 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 of great music that you've put out as a label. Um, I knew this would be a great natter, and yeah. yeah, and I really appreciate your time. Thanks loads, Ian. Really good to uh, speak to you. Thanks very much. Thanks, mate. There you go. What a top lad Ian was. Um, I knew that'd be a, a, a great chat when uh, when my pal said you should speak to him. Um, I knew that he wouldn't have done that unless there was uh, there was an opportunity for a, a great natter, and uh, and that's exactly what happened. Um, I hope you got as much joy listening to that uh, as I did having that. Go and check out uh, the label. Um, click the bio, and uh, the, the link will be in the bio, so you can do that. You can also go over to Spotify and listen to all the songs that... Um, that Ian chose uh, over on Spotify. And, yeah, as mentioned at the beginning, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can. You can do that on Patreon and uh, and get loads of other content. And, yeah, go and have a rummage in the, the back catalogue of this podcast as well. You can do all of it. I'm wittering there. You've, you, you, you've had hour and 20, minute, uh, hour and 20 minutes now of, of chitter-chatter, so I'll keep this brief. Everything you need to know about this podcast, www.offthebeatandtrackpodcast.com. There you go. Take care, lovely people. I'll see you soon. Bye-bye. I've got an announcement. Save Our Souls Clothing. www.sosclothing.co.uk Why am I telling you this? Because they're our official sponsor. Yeah, that's right. Go and check them out because their clothing is off the scale. You're going to love it. So they've decided they want to be our sponsor, which is amazing. And... What I have to do is I have to tell you about why they're amazing. So here's a little bit of blurb. So they've only been going a year. And they're based in South End on Sea, just up the road from me. They put the company together based on a, a love of tattoos and alternative music. And they've worked with some of the greatest artists around the world to produce these items of clothing that are as unique as you lot. All of the designs are printed using biodegradable, sustainable and water-based inks. And in addition to that, they only print on garments made by members of Fairwear Foundation. I mean, come on, great clothing and a conscience. Since going live in April last year, they've seen their audience grow massively and are now selling orders all across the world. 
and they were recognised by Cosmopolitan magazine as one of the best sustainable clothing brands alongside names such as Stella McCartney. I mean, that's quite a first year, right? So, go and check them out because they've put a lot of love into supporting this podcast and I couldn't be happier. What else they've done is they've given you 15% off. So if you head over to www.sosclothing.co.uk, do a bit of shopping, see what you like, throw it in the basket, and then on the way out, put in the discount code BEAT15. B-E-A-T-1-5. And that'll save you 15% off. Amazing, right? www.sosclothing.co.uk Official sponsors of Off The Beat and Track Podcast. It's Off The Beat and Track Podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. It means stew with him. Eat a pocket.